All right, let me show you how this is done, Dante. Okay, ready? Here we go. This week on the Eldritch Lawcast. Okay, all right, interesting. Uh, Sean Merwin, what would you say? To What's that? happening? I don't like this. I am an absolute sucker for a dead body with a journal. Well, I want to know how many of those books James Hake wrote for. Leave a YouTube comment. You can leave a YouTube comment. Bill, I'm going to ask you a kind of snarky question. We're just going to sit here in silence. That's the plan. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be silence. You know, Baldur's Gate is a computer game. D&D is a pen and paper role-playing game. Force feed, you know, here comes the airplane. Here comes the law. <laughs> I'm afraid to answer differently than Dale, so what she said. All that and more right now. Boom! Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Eldritch Lawcast, the number one tabletop RPG podcast in all the realms. That's right. This is number one. My name is Ben Byrne, and I am joined, as always, by Dale Kingsmill, Sean Merwin, James Hake, uh, and James, I have to ask, initiative order. What do you use for initiative? Bog standard. I have heard many different types of initiatives suggested over the years, and the only one that's ever appealed to me other than make a list of everyone going in order the same way 5th edition D&D does it, is the way that Lancer does it, okay. which is first the players go, one, you know, among yourselves pick who's going, then the GM chooses one enemy to go, then the players pick and the next player to go until all the players are done, then the rest of the enemies go. And then we start over from the beginning again. Um, it mm -hmm. works really well in that game because it permits uh, combos between players. And I really like the teamwork that that facilitates. I, like James, try to use standard because there are alternatives that are suggested in many places, including in the Dungeon Master's Guide, that don't really work well. They sound good until you actually do them. The only alternative initiative in a D&D like game that I. Uh, have a hankering for is Rob Schwalb's uh, Shadow of the Demon Lord and now Shadow of the Weird Wizard, where they break it down into slow and fast, where if you right. are just doing one thing, you go on the fast turn, players first, then monsters. And if you're taking a slow turn, then the slow turn people go, players first, then monsters. And I think that makes sense, and it is not so dramatically different from a typical initiative that it makes it too wonky to use. That kind of reminds me, uh, it sounds like a very simplified version of, I think, uh, RuneScape, I think it is, which has like your initiative is based on um, if, you, if you're if you attacking with a dagger, you go four in the initiative order. Yeah. But if you're, you know, casting a spell, it's like 12. And then if you're uh, shooting a bow, I thought this was really interesting. It's like you're at initiative two to knock an arrow and then it's like initiative eight to actually fire the arrow. So you kind of go twice. Um, uh, that sounds like a much, I, I found that really would do my head in as an archer. Cause I was just like, wait, I have to wait till when to be able to do this very simple, what felt like a very simple thing from D and D. Uh, Dale Kingsmill, what about yourself? Uh, my favorite version of initiative is popcorn initiative, which is similar to what uh, James was describing. It's, you know, uh, whoever goes for, I, I like it to be whoever says I'm attacking goes first and then they choose who goes after them. And then that person chooses who goes after them and no one can go twice until everyone else has had a turn, including yeah, okay. the bad guys. Um, and I find that there's kind of a, a natural narrative selection that comes about through that uh, because 
you know, if if the players just go, oh, well, we'll just all go, then they will learn very quickly that after they go, all the bad guys uh, get to go and then they also get to choose who goes at the start of the next round. So they will get uh... a second set of turns, right? Because whoever goes last gets to choose who goes next. Um, so I, I find there's kind of a natural uh, ebb and flow that develops uh, after a, a little while of that. But it does not work for D&D. So when it comes to D&D, I use standard initiative. Uh, my one tweak is that when people are rolling initiative, I let them roll with either wisdom or dex because uh, I think that you might be reacting very quickly, which is dex, but you also just might see it coming. I think okay. people who are wise or have good insight uh, are probably likely to just feel the tension rising and know that something's about to happen. So I let people roll with wisdom as well. Yeah, okay. I, I like that fix. And I also, I, I think I... I I'd always heard of Popcorn Initiative, but it always just sounded to me like, yeah, why wouldn't the players just nuke whatever they're fighting before that thing even gets a chance to go? Um, I, I think I had missed the part where um, the the next group, uh, uh, like they can hand it to themselves in the next round to just yeah. go again, yeah. uh, which is interesting. Which obviously is more effective if you have a very big, powerful person who's not going to go down in one round, or if you have enough bad guys that there's still going to be a lot of them at the end yeah, of one sure. round. Um, but if you're fighting, like, I don't know, two nulls, it probably won't be quite as efficient. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, I've tried a couple of alternatives as well that I admittedly haven't super liked, which is remove initiative order, everybody just kind of declares what they want to do, and then the GM just kind of puzzles it together in terms of, like, what makes sense um, so that, you know, everybody's kind of moving at the same time and moving away from each other at the same time. But I found that really messy. Um, I asked this question because I've been playing with an idea, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on it, which is what I'm going, and I'm sure this has occurred to other people as well, uh, but I'm going to call it Boulder's Gate Initiative. Because what I've noticed about Baldur's Gate, having played it uh, for probably about 40 hours now, um, is that, Dale, when you and I were playing it, we didn't have to wait for each other at all. I could just take my whole no. turn uh, and you were, were doing your own thing, right? Um, but if I'm playing it on my own, if I have my dudes next to each other in the initiative order, I can swap between them freely, not just deciding who goes first, but actually like making an actions. attack with the fighter then to to use a distracting strike or whatever it's called to give advantage on the next attack, swapping to my rogue, Astarian, to then make a sneak attack and then swapping back to the fighter to make their second attack against a different enemy if the first one has been slain. So I can break up movement, actions, bonus, I can completely break up their turns between each other. And I kind of wondered how this would work in the in the ground rules of fifth edition because i think it would present maybe a couple of problems that maybe we can solve here but the advantage is that same thing we've been talking about for a little while which is i take my turn and then 10 15 20 minutes go by before i take my turn again as opposed to the players all talking to each other and figuring out okay well i want to move over there but i'm stuck next to that dude because he's going to get an attack of opportunity why don't you attack him first and then I'll move and cast a spell at him and then you can make your second attack to see if we can take him down together. And it becomes a, a kind of collaborative single player turn of combat as opposed to um, kind of I, I cast one thing, then it's the next person. I cast one thing, then, it you know, uh, thoughts. 
<laughs> um, well, my first thought is that it seems to happen in Baldur's Gate. I've played a bit on my own now as well. And it seems to happen in Baldur's Gate when you're playing solo and I guess people have rolled... You have to have rolled initiative next to each other because yes, if there correct. is a bad guy in between, then you can't do it, right. um, which does make some sense. Uh, and it makes me think of like those moments when two players have rolled the same initiative and they're like, oh, do you want to go first or should I? Wouldn't it be interesting if they did just split up all their actions and stuff with each other? That would feel kind of cool and awesome. But as you were describing it just then, the weird thing is it reminded me a lot of playing fourth edition. It reminded me, and and it wasn't like we were splitting up our actions or things like that, but I think it was just kind of, the way some of those classes were um, structured. So we had a warlord in our party who frequently their actions, their turn is going to be giving us another thing to do, you know, is going mm -hmm. to be giving our fighter another attack. Um, and so it felt a lot like there was this kind of constant ebb and flow in the battle where someone else is, is doing something on your turn. But th the thing that immediately comes to mind, we had this big sort of dramatic fight that went very badly in a tower full of hobgoblins. Uh, and there was a moment when two of our party members were separated from us. Um, I had, I was trying to get sort of line of sight so that I could cast a spell to help, but I had, I was surrounded by like four bad guys. So I had to duck out of the way of them. And then the fighter kills one of them. And then this is happening. And it all just kind of everyone dogpiled on in the middle of my turn in order mm. to save me so that I could get to where I needed to be in order to save the other two party members. It was just one of the coolest turns that I've ever experienced in D&D. It really, that one specific turn has stuck with me. So if mm. there was a way to do that in 5e, I would, I'd be here for it. Dale, I'm going to ask you a kind of snarky question with the knowledge that that turn sounds freaking amazing. How long did that turn take? Oh, as long as any other turn. <laughs> <laughs> it's still going on, actually. Yeah. <laughs> we'll find out room. how it went. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm actually in the background. I'm going to look up the exact numbers for you, James. It was on video. I think you can find out, right? Yeah. Um, well, th this is this is the trick is that, you know, uh, as any discussion like this must eventually go, you know, Baldur's Gate is a computer game. Uh, D&D is a pen and paper role playing game. There are things that a computer can keep in its brain that become, you know, prohibitive for players to keep in their brain, uh, such as whose turn is it anymore, such as did you make three attacks or just two? Things like, did you take your bonus action yet? Uh, who's got a reaction left? And these are great questions that, you know, in a system with a bunch of players who all want to play this way can be solved by using physical uh, implements. Like mm. maybe at the start of every turn, you bust out a white, blue, and red poker chip to represent action, bonus action, movement, Oh, but because D&D doesn't have a move action anymore, right? Now you have to keep track of your movement granularly. So, right, it, we still have issues yeah. here. Which, um, by the way, also, there are things that the computer is tracking in Baldur's Gate that I don't know what it's tracking. It'll just be like, <laughs> you can't move there. And I'm screaming, why? <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so as long as you and your group are all tactics-brained enough to keep all of these things in your head using either, you know manipulable implements or your brains alone or something like that it's such a cool tactical interface 
it, I mean, it makes me think of when I'm playing Lancer, which is very 4E inspired. It's a very tactical game with tactical movement and tactical options and turns take forever. And you're, uh, you have to be very precise about what you're doing. Um, but it makes it a really fun game. And mm-hmm. I think it's a great solution to D and D games where your turns start stretching out longer and longer and longer because these are getting more and more and more options. Because 5e is straddling this line between combat turns taking about 30 seconds at first level and 10 minutes at 10th level. Uh, So if you decide you want to go all in on the long turn aspect, I think you should start thinking of ways to make those long turns really fun. And this is a great idea. Right. And the the other aspect to keep in mind is who are you playing with and whose plan is going to trump the other person's plan? Because Uh, I've played with more than enough groups, including people who play together a lot, who decide, well, I want to do my big fireball, so everyone should do X. Where someone else says, well, I'm set up for my big hasted six attack round, and by golly, I'm not leaving this square for your fireball, so no. And then it's like, well, who decides which plan is going to take effect? If you're mm-hmm. just an initiative, the person whose turn it is gets to make that plan. And that mm-hmm. can solve right. a lot of issues. Uh, so I, I think there could be a game that does that. And D&D 5e might be that game for some people. It's just not that game for all people. Yeah, for sure. I mean, to try to solve a couple of these problems as you're talking, um, you know, James, you, you already said physical implements. I think that... Um, you know, a lot of war games and and miniature tabletop games like um, Warhammer Underworlds use tokens to say, like, it's part of the rules. When you move an attack, which is a charge action, you put a charge token down next to that miniature, which then dictates what other options it has in subsequent turns until that token is removed. And so you could have, you know, action tokens and bonus action tokens and maybe, you know, a distance token or something uh, that gets put down next to characters as they take their move actions. Um, the other, uh, in terms of who, whose plan trumps what with the fighter who's hasted and ready to go and the fireball that's ready to be unleashed, um, I, I would hope, and obviously this depends on the group because you do have groups where players feel a bit competitive, but the intention, I suppose, would be that the fighter can move out of the way and that's just that part of their turn, the fireball drops and then the fighter can move back in, uh, you know, within the bounds of their movement and uh, do their six hasted turn to mop up whoever wasn't slain by the fireball or vice versa. Maybe you could have like an initiative, like you don't lose initiative entirely. It's just kind of, you know, if three people are next to each other, they can interact their turn a little bit, but whoever's highest in initiative um, in a competing kind of, I want to do this and I want to do that, gets to have the kind of final say on what happens because they've rolled higher in initiative. Um, j- just some thoughts on trying to kind of bounce these, uh, solve these problems for this idea. But, uh, but yeah. By the way, James, the turn took just shy of seven minutes. Pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, much less than my start and my snarky question deserved. Still not short. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen seven minute turns in normal five For games, a turn that like... I knew exactly what I wanted to do, still not short. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Somebody said in the comments, you know what else can keep all this stuff in your head? A potential new VTT. <gasps> um, I do know. I didn't... You gave him the segue. You yeah. kind soul, you gave him the segue. 
Um, uh, I'm not going to quite segue to the news yet, or this is kind of news. I didn't put it on the run sheet. I'm just kind of curious if anybody here um, has looked at any reviews. There have been some kind of quiet-ish alpha or beta testing of the, the, the Wizards of the Coast VTT that have been going on. I've been watching a couple of YouTube channels. I think Nerd Immersion's been had access to it and has been doing some loose reviews. I've seen some other videos that I haven't clicked on that, that have kind of um, you know, had access to it. Um, it, from what I, I, I haven't watched these videos in detail. So maybe this is a non-topic because to me, I'm just like, eh, it looks, it sounds fine. It sounds like, it sounds like it's very loose. You know, um, Ted was saying that he wished that the system kind of limited certain things that the players could do so that they can't just, you know, pick up any mini or move things around on their own. But for me personally, I kind of prefer them to be able to do that because I'd prefer this VTT to be as flexible as possible because D&D is a game where you might have to be like, ah, oh, you know what, actually this kobold uh, moves over here inst- or whatever. You know, I'd rather that the, that the, the, the limitations of the software doesn't limit what the DM or the players can do at the table because you're not limited when you have physical minis in front of you, you know? Um, has anybody else seen any of this? Uh, has any thoughts on it or just let this one float by? Ben, I think this topic you've brought up about the flexibility versus uh, rules adherence of the system is probably going to be the great debate of this entire VTT, ignoring any sort of like cultural trappings surrounding it. Because uh, I think I agree with your opinion. I can think of a lot of people who probably won't agree with your opinion. Yeah. Uh and I think these developers are in for a hell of a storm when they try and figure <laughs> out whose opinion they should hard code into their computer program. Um, I think they might be able to, you know, play both sides by having some back end DM tools, you know, turn certain functionalities off and on. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's way better to just have a, you know, a virtual tabletop that the DM Mm. can arbitrate rather than having, you know, the back end of a video game that the DM must abide by. I have not seen it, but I totally agree with James there. Uh, It's, it's going to be interesting. People have opinions about what the game should be much less what the tools to make the games (laughs) will be. Yeah. I I can see it going both ways. I I will admit, like uh, I thought, you know, there's nothing stopping players from picking up the kobolds on a physical tabletop and moving the miniatures around if they want, aside from, don't be souls. Uh, but at the same time, playing uh, Twilight Imperium on Tabletop Simulator, I was the dude who would just pick up random elements of the game that weren't being used and drop them in someone's play space secretly uh, and wait until somebody noticed. So, chaos rules. Anyway. Wait, here's a bit of news. Speaking of ETTs, uh, Roll20. Has anyone seen Roll20 buying Dungeon Scrawl? Yeah. Dungeon Scrawl is a map-making bit of software that's actually very, very handy, very intuitive, very strong. And it was purchased by Roll20, and everyone got excited because you could make a map in Dungeon Scrawl in 30 seconds. Uh, But it doesn't look like it's going to be integrated soon or easily. So that became out. Yay! Oh, moment. (laughs) But if if Roll20 can integrate Dungeon Scrawl into it, so a DM can build a six-room dungeon in world 20 in 30 seconds that's amazing definitely that's one of my big limitations of avoiding vtts is the time that it takes to 
create a VTT map, you know? And mm-hmm. I know that the, you know, even Roll20 can kind of be used like a virtual whiteboard where you can just like draw on it and like you would on a on a literal uh, grid mm-hmm. battle map. But if I'm going to have digital, it's got to look cool, you know? Otherwise, mm-hmm. I may as well just use physical in my opinion, unless you're playing online. Here's my only real complaint about this. And it's a complaint more about Dungeon Scrawl than about the the acquisition. I, I just remember back in 2021, Dyson Logos, the guy who makes those very popular hatchwork style maps, um, he, he tweeted this, among other uh, sort of ornery things, congrats to Dungeon Scrawl. It emulates my work so well that I now get weekly complaints from Scrawl fans that I'm ripping off your free tools to make money. When in yeah. fact, you know, it, well, I end, just assumed that he was involved in some aspect. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I, I was on a podcast with Devin Rue, the critical world map maker last mm. week where we talked about this a little bit. But it's, you know, it, this is kind of a part of my fear about generative AI. Uh, not to say, for example, that Dungeon Scroll necessarily uses what we can t- what we describe as generative AI right now, but it does use something not unlike it. Um, it's that, you know, when, when you've got a distinctive style and regrettably for Dyson, his distinctive style is kind of easily lifted. Its strength is often found in its simplicity rather than it's, you know, mm. ex- extremely detailed rendering, um, is that, you know, a- anyone with a program and a dream can now make a pretty good Dyson logos map sans any of the, uh, the artisanry that goes into mm. it. It's also, it's a it's a tricky one in terms of, um, because I know that he's, you know, done lots of tutorials showing people how mm-hmm. to uh, do it, how to how to draw maps like that themselves. And I know that uh, in my experience, you know, I, I release a lot of content for free attached to my YouTube channel. I do videos mm-hmm. explaining all of it. And I, you know, for, for many years, the only reason that I had a Dungeon Masters Guild uh, account was so that I could leave comments on people's, product saying, hey, if you're going to use my design work, don't charge for it. I don't mind if you uh, are, you know, using my stuff, if you just leave a a credit somewhere and don't charge people for it, because I'm releasing it for free. So it's weird when you come along and are getting paid for a thing that I designed, right? And so then you're in this weird gray area, though, because Mm -hmm. it's like, but I did release it for free. Uh, and mm. and at least legally speaking, I think morally it's a bit like, oh, come on. But, um, <laughs> but at least legally speaking, I wouldn't have a, a particularly strong case. You know what I mean? I mean, there's a, you know, from the creative side of things, and this is a kind of an interesting rabbit hole we've tumbled down, but there is a an anxiety and a, um, uh, from a creator perspective of like um, inspired by versus um you know plagiarized because there's definitely you know the way that creativity works is that you see something you know creativity in many ways is a mirror to society that's right we've gone there um we've gone full university student college student sorry let me translate um and so often like it's like oh that thing's cool i want to you know i've described things in my game uh via pure description of an artwork that i've seen online right but if I was to describe that without using the artwork in a book and it's just, you know, using words and maybe I add a few things to it, is that plagiarism of that artwork if that artwork is never seen um, in, in the, the final product? 
Um, I've definitely copied um, or tried to emulate Dyson's uh, map style before, definitely not to their proficiency, but just in the basic kind of hatcheting the borders style to make it clear where uh, the dungeon is and where it's where the walls of the dungeon sort of are. Um, and and you know, AI and generative art is kind of a, a different discussion in ways because that's not a person that's emulating. That's that's literal emulation. That's yeah. um, you know, that's not inspiration. That's you know, um, uh, literally drawing numbers into a into a thing. Um, but it's an interesting topic and it's why, you know, copyright law is so weird is because copy, like the law, law and creativity almost don't work together, right? Like it's hard to make laws around creativity and the way the creative space, uh, necessarily works. And not to mention that two people can have the same idea in vacuums that look very similar, you know, when they come together. Oh, it's, we've, we've just, you know, brushed up against an enormous <laughs> cultural issue. I'm sure we can resolve this in the next five minutes. Don't you think, lads? Perfect. Yeah. Let's <laughs> yeah. do it. We've got other topics to get onto. So, uh, James, you're on the clock. Go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, pass. All right, let us jump to the other virtual news uh, that we're a little bit late getting to, to be honest. This happened a couple of weeks ago, but I'm extremely excited, especially because I finally got to jump in and have a play. Uh, Nexus 5e Mm. uh, from Demiplane have dropped a whole bunch of third-party supplements onto Nexus 5e, um, uh, which is kind of uh, their their competitor to D&D Beyond, if you will. Um, they have dropped uh, Tal'Dorei Reborn, appeared there uh, only, I think, a week or two after it appeared on D&D Beyond. Um, they also have uh, Tome of Beasts 1 and 2 from Cobalt Press, which are two excellent uh, monster manuals. And uh, uh, the number one monster manual in all the realms, you might say, uh, the Grim Hollow Monster Grimoire, at least for Dark Fantasy, the Grim Hollow Monster Grimoire, uh, is also available on Nexus 5e or 5e Nexus, whichever way the, around it is. Um, and I could not be more excited because I love me a monster search database. End of sentence. I love <laughs> me. Look, uh, truths aside. Um, uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah, no, I just, I, I, you know, I used Cobalt Fight Club back in the day when I was trying to come up, oh, this dungeon needs a, a, some sort of fire-themed monster or I want a dragon, but I'm not sure what dragon I want, which one, you know, kind of fits the CR. Um, and D&D Beyond has been great for that as well. But uh, seeing all my Cobalt Press monsters, all the Monster Grimoire monsters uh, and the SRD monsters kind of together uh, in a searchable database has been absolutely fantastic. Well, I want to know how many of those books James Hake wrote for, because I have a feeling it was more than one. <laughs> well, Sean, you're the one who led the monster grimoire. Let's let's not false modesty your way out of this one. No, no, but I mean, you've worked for Cobalt Press. You've obviously worked on the Taldoray campaign book. You've worked for Grim Hollow. Uh, I'll bet yeah, they. For, I'll, for, I'll bet they have Creature Codex on there. I wasn't involved in any of the Tome of Beasts, if I'm remembering right, but I was definitely okay. on Creature Codex. I can't believe how late my turn in for that one was. That's probably my most embarrassing like publisher <laughs> don't, moment. Don't, don't advertise that. This is public. This is public. Yeah. <laughs> That's not why it's in the Nexus now. We're still waiting on yeah. James uh, monsters. <laughs> I'm really excited to have all of those monsters searchable. Like. Uh, you know, the, there's this sort of 
pessimist in my brain that has all of these little quibbles that I that I want to, you know, spew out there into the world. But honestly, it's just really cool to have a huge monster database. People go through the monster manual all the time and are like, where are all the mid CR plants and mm. stuff like that? And like books like Tome of Beasts one, two, three, Creature Codex literally had those goals in mind. Right. They were like, let's fill in the gaps of the monster manual. MCDM's Flea Mortals, which I'm sure will be up on that site in due time, uh, had those things in mind, though kind of the opposite way around. It's like, let's do the stuff that was in the monster manual in a cooler way. Uh, I mean, I think that if you took Flea Mortals, the Tome of Beasts, you could basically replace the monster manual uh, and have some rad stuff that does 5e in a way that no player would expect and then when you start going into genre right you can look at the monsters from the monster grimoire for your dark fantasy game you can uh look at the creatures in the ethereal expanse campaign guide that's going to come out in the next year or so and i'm sure if our monster grimoire is there on 5e nexus we'll have the ethereal expanse monsters on there too uh and then you've got your swashbuckling high magic game you know uh, it's just awesome. It's a, it's it makes me happy to be an RPG player in a game when it's so easy to mm. uh, use all of this stuff at once. Mm. I, I've already been using it uh, because I own every single one of those books, and I am constantly going. Oh, I need a new monster for my players. They know everything from the monster manual, so I pull out the Tome of Beasts and I um, flip, flip, flip. Pull out, uh, flip, 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 and now I'm like. I could just search all these. And I did. Yeah. And it was great. <laughs> yep. Um, searchability for me, it's like it's like the way that I use DND Beyond. I don't tend to use DND Beyond to play. And I also don't tend to like drag and drop monsters into my game. But I'm always looking stuff up beforehand as like a starting point. Like 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 Ben, when you mentioned looking for a dragon, what kind of dragon do I want? Could mm. never be me. I would just be like, I want a dragon, so I will write one right now. <laughs> um, but it is always nice when I'm when I'm sort of conceptualizing a session or a campaign or what have you to be able to look for a close starting point. Uh, and the more the more uh, sort of collections I can look through, the the better. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, it's just that thing of of you know, dragons might be a weird example because they're so different and specific between each other. But like James said, like a mid tier CR five plant monster, I can just put that in and refine the results down. Previously, I had to flip through a book like a Neanderthal, and now I can just really easily search plant and CR whatever you know, set the parameters. I want it to be resistant to fire. I put that, you know, like whatever it is. Um, I, I love me a search engine for monsters. Um, so, yeah, go get the Monster Grimoire uh, on 5e Nexus among uh, a uh, luminary, I'm going to use that word, of other uh, third-party uh, supplements as well. Speaking of absolutely fantastic things, I love this listener email. I'm going to ask you this question first, Dale Kingsmill. What is the email address that you email to contact the Eldritch Lawcast? Why, I believe it's podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. Okay. All right. Interesting. Uh, Sean Merwin, what would you say? Uh, to What's that? happening? I don't like this. <laughs> I, 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 I'm afraid to answer differently than Dale, so what she said. Agreeance among the cast is good. Uh, yeah. James Hake. Ghost pod at cast 
firegaming.org, something oh, like that. Oh, James. Oh, James. <laughs> Always the, the problem student. Um, apologize to this, this emailer. I just remembered this, but they genuinely did send in an email asking what the email was uh, to email the podcast. Uh, <laughs> That's a good email. That's a good email. Who, is, who said that? Who said I, that? I will find out. I will find out and I will make it public. I, apologize. I should have saved that for next week. Lex has also emailed podcast at ghostfiregaming.com. I love this question. Uh, asking about implicit storytelling uh, in an RPG. How do you communicate lore slash flavor that isn't just presented in block text or I suppose a GM's, you know, five-minute long explanation of a thing? How much can a random table, a spell, uh, a subclass, a class, uh, a species tell about the game world? Um, and is this a better way to communicate law, particularly to players that might be resistant to expositious monologues, um, but enjoy discovering things through exploration? Well, there, there's a lot we can learn from video games on this. There are, there are many games out there that are prided on their environmental storytelling. Uh, sometimes facetiously, like in Dead Space, where, you know, there's a bunch of aliens that have had their limbs chopped off and then, you know, three feet down the corridor, there's a huge graffiti scroll saying, cut off the limbs to tell you to cut off the aliens limbs to kill them. Um, which I don't know. So sometimes is the average puzzle difficulty of a D and D puzzle, because uh, <laughs> I think most D and D people get a little bit distracted at the corners. Um, uh, but you know, you look at all the great games that are praised for their environmental storytelling of games like dark souls and bloodborne from soft games, get this treatment a lot. Trying to figure out how to translate that into a tabletop game would be quite challenging because these games do a lot of heavy lifting with their uh, atmosphere, which is all visual. To, to which I say, what you need to do to get people to think that you are telling a very environmental, uh, compelling, uh, implicit story is just to set up a really good atmosphere and tone. Um, and the trick with that is your players have to buy in. Right, you can't tell a horror game if your players are not interested in being scared. Uh, you can't do the Lord of the Rings if your players are eye rolling at your uh, extremely loquacious verbiage about nature and you know the the size of the armies and stuff like that. So, because of the raw nature of tabletop games, you can get as much good advice as you want, but at the end of the day, it comes down to the social agreement between the GM and the players. And like you can learn a lot from role-playing games, you can also learn a lot from education. Because mm. in education, what are you trying to do? You are trying to impart knowledge onto the people listening to you in a way that will go into their brain and hopefully remain there. And so what's the worst way that most people learn is if someone is standing there droning on and on monotonously and you're never getting to the point, and you're not even really sure what you're supposed to be learning. So if you follow or know any education uh, tropes, that's not the word I'm looking for, <laughs> you, you, there's a way to let the listener anticipate what you're about to say. You want them actively learning as opposed to passively learning. All of those things can translate well. Ben knows what I'm talking about. All of those oh, can yeah. translate we've, we've well. We've passed into pedagogy now. Oh, yes. <laughs> translate well into role-playing games. Uh, so you don't want to drone on and on for more than, say, a minute ab about something. Why do 
uh, sometimes to a fault, DMs like players to roll dice. Sometimes even when it doesn't make any sense to roll dice because there's no consequences to a success or failure, because people like to roll dice and they begin to pay attention again when you roll dice. So that's why sometimes DMs will call for checks when they're not necessary and hope to re-engage someone. But you can do it when you're trying to tell them something, because no matter what they roll, you can then deliver the knowledge that you were about to deliver. But now their their brain has changed from, oh boy, I'm being lectured at to, I've just made a roll. Now there is going to be a consequence and I am ready to accept that consequence when it could be the bit of knowledge, the bit of lore, the bit of exposition that you were going to be boring with previously. Yes, 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 yes. All of this uh, feels like it feeds what I'm going to say. It makes me very happy. I was going to uh, use the example of video games as well, but what you shouldn't do, uh, perhaps. <laughs> so uh, Ben and I playing Baldur's Gate the other day, we had a conversation about picking up the books and mm. the fact that there's all this writing in the books that you can pick up and, and you asked whether I read the books in Skyrim. No, I did not. No one did. I can't tell you actually much of the lore of the Elder Scrolls because so much of it is delivered in these long passages of the books that you can pick up. And I, I, there are lots of people who are going to sit and read those. No judgment against those people at all. I, I'm pretty sure the reason I'm a mythology nerd is because my brother read every entry that came up in Age of Mythology and I just absorbed it because I was the little sister hanging around bored. Um, so, you know, it, it, you know, sometimes it does sink in, but you're really relying on a lot of heavy lifting from the listener or the reader. And it's the same with, you know, Baldur's Gate, like I mentioned, it's the same with Dragon Age, which is wild because Dragon Age has such good implicit lore, like, delivery that it's so bizarre that they will also particularly in inquisition be like here's a long passage of information about theater bright act <laughs> i don't care no. i don't care and i don't want to read it meanwhile you look at like dragon age 2 the architecture in that game the murals in that game deliver so much world building information about you know this is kirkwall it was a slave city that's like the main thing about it <laughs> and you learn that in like the first the first loading screen because of the mural they've got in the background. You know what I mean? So much of it is imparted by sort of just tone, vibe, art. Art is a huge part of that. The other thing that I was going to say is um, Mary Stewart. So this is, I mean, speaking of uh, loquacious verbiage about plants, the first time my mother handed me a Mary Stewart book, she skipped the first like 10 pages of the book before handing it to me and she said, Nothing much has happened. She's just talked about flowers. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but Mary Stewart is is really good at um, the sort of descriptive language that talks about the journey. So this is less exploration and more um, travel, which I think are different things. It should be treated as different things in D&D. But Mary Stewart is really good at giving you sort of lore dumps in the context of travel that I think are more easily kind of um, digestible. 
So there's a passage in, I think, My Brother Michael, where she's talking about, like, real-world places. She's talking about traveling through Greece, and she talks about this um, this three-way crossroads where, um, in ancient times, a king was murdered by his son, right? And for me, that's a, a delectable morsel that's a, a reference to Oedipus. But as she's talking about, you know, this crossroads and this mountain and, and you know, uh, Parnassus, home of the gods, right? She just drops in these these descriptions of, of the things that you're seeing as you're traveling but throws you little morsels of the the sort of history of the world and and the religion and things like that that I think sit in a really fun way that make people curious. You know, if you have a mountain range and you say, ah, yes, this is called um, uh, Heaven's Council or something like that, that's the name of the mountain range and there are seven mountain peaks that represent the thrones of each of the gods, that gives just a little bit, you know, it's just that little taste that makes them go, ooh, who are the seven gods? Without having to like force feed, you know, here comes the aeroplane, here comes the law. <laughs> I, I want to speak to this question moving a little bit into the next one, which was from Nick. Uh, I think these questions dovetail pretty well together, asking about how GMs can uh, tend, it's kind of a given that they can have the fiat to be able to restrict uh, particularly species options or ancestry options within a, a role-playing game if that ancestry doesn't fit within the world that they're running, but also class and subclass options possibly. Um, and do should and do GMs restrict monster options based on that world as well? And I think that for me the way to create uh, implicit storytelling is through intention um, and really, I take forever to prep my games. You know, I virtually write an adventure module every time I prep a game because I, I don't want to roll randomly on a, on a random chart. Or if I do create a random chart, which was referenced in Lex's question, uh, I have crafted that chart myself to, to be like, yeah. these are the things that are going to show up here as a, like, I don't, I don't want them wandering around fallow heart, this city of night in Astoria. And in the middle of it, you know, uh, I don't even know what, a coattle just like he's flying around, you know, <laughs> through the, the middle of the streets. Um, and so what what would people find there? Um, and I think that that intention is important in your monster selection, not just for like regional locations, but also specific locations. You know, what what monsters is this mage in their tower likely to have in their employ? And why are those monsters there the species or the ancestries that the players choose from but also those that they run across within game um i think class and subclass is actually a really great way and we've been talking about this in videos on our youtube channel if you have a planeswalker i can't think of what they're actually called but that that ranger that can teleport between dimensions the horizon walker the horizon yeah. walker instantly your game probably has portals floating around the place to teleport to different planes because if it doesn't that why does that subclass exist you know what i mean mm -hmm. and so yeah. being intentional about what you kind of uh put into the the ingredients the melting pot of your game and when you bring those ingredients in and have those things show up uh, i think can do a lot of that implicit storytelling for uh setting the tone uh, and atmosphere and and story of your game um this doesn't always go well uh, because of 5e. 5e can interfere with this. And I have a quick example is uh, when I have people in uh, uh, urban or villages, you know, safe areas, the types of encounters that I choose to use are meant to be fairly mundane. You know, people 
animals, beasts, maybe a monstrosity, but like people know about that monstrosity that lives down in the cave, you know, but don't go near that cave. And then as my players moved out of a village and started going into the, the dreaded Valley of Mists, um, there was a rock which spoke to them with a face. And the whole intention was to be like, yeah, you're not in civilization anymore. You have at some point stepped beyond the veil into some strain, into the dreaded Valley of Mists. And here are these fantastical monsters of rocks that will talk to you and ghosts in this valley and, you know, whatever it happens to be. Um, and one of my players asked, they were like, is this normal? Like, are we like do rocks always talk in in <laughs> this place, or like what's going on here? I was like, okay, and, and tried to explain what what I, the effect I'm going for here is. You have travelled uh, beyond the veil, so sometimes a bit of explicit explanation might uh, be needed. Last week we talked about magic. Everything yes. is magic, and and this <laughs> is the same conversation, right? It's it's what does your world, and it's it's funny because on the 0.75 best podcast in all the lands mastering dungeons uh on our <laughs> on our discord uh we were having this very conversation moments after we had been talking about it here which was i don't like the direction of this game or that game because it does make everything magical i want my fighters to be fighters not wizards with swords i want my rogues to be tricky not tricky because of magic. And all of this comes together here when we talk about lore and how it's presented and, and all of these things. You need that flexibility as a storyteller. Uh, you need that flexibility. But then when, when you have that flexibility, you also take on the onus of delivering it to your players in a way that is pleasing to them. And makes them understand why I don't want any divine casters in this world. I don't want any clerics or paladins. Uh, and this is why. And I'm going to show, I'm not going to sit down at our session zero and say, this, this treatise I'm about to present you is why my world is that way. Let me explain it to you in the game. Let me make mm. you receptive to these things. And you will learn why this is the case. And you will be amazed and delighted by it. Mm. Um, we've got random Dale fan in chat um, <laughs> says, I tried to solve that in my own game and wrote up a 10 page document of common knowledge about the world. No one read it. Mm -hmm. Oh, a relatable, a relatable dilemma. Um, and that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. It's, it's that thing of trying to force feed your players, the information that you want them to have. And it's just, it's just so difficult. I have been there. I've also gone through the process of, of taking that information, boiling it down. I'm like, how can I, how can I condense this into just one page for this person? Okay. How can I condense this down into half a page for this person? How can I condense this down into just like, just some dot points? <laughs> 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 what, are, what are the key pieces of information that I really want them to know about this? And even then sometimes they do not read it. Um, and it can be, it can be really sort of disheartening in a lot of ways, but, uh, you know, players gotta gotta be like that. Um, I think sometimes if if you are gonna be that cruel DM like I am, who really limits the kind of uh, subclasses and classes that your players are playing with, you can kind of sneak it in through the names of features. You can sneak in little bits and pieces just in the in the stuff that they do have to read in order to play their character. Just a thought. Yeah. 
Orable cabbage mentions in the comments something that I really agree with, and it's uh, it's got something to do with the way you describe things, and it involves a balance between the uh, the implicit and the explicit. Right? I can mm-hmm. imagine a scene: the first session of a new campaign, everyone is gathered in a tavern, and I say, as you gather around this table, uh, the bartender approaches you, a server approaches you, and This server looms above you, seven feet tall, with four arms covered in insectoid chitin. It looks at you through compound eyes and speaks to you in a cocktail of pheromones that enter through your nervous system rather than through your ears. And you get exactly the sense of what it's trying to say to you. What are you drinking? Um, And then I would immediately append to that, oh, and this this is an insect folk. You know exactly who these are. This is this is normal to you, um, and, <laughs> and while it may be completely abnormal <laughs> to the characters or, or to the the players, uh, yeah. this is just a little hump for them to get over mentally. Where it's like, oh, okay, but so we can just talk with this person like they're a normal person. Yeah, okay, cool, got it. Yeah, uh, and you know, history checks, religion checks, those sort of things exist um, within the game. For a reason, right? You know, players that are really interested uh, or want their character to feel like they are knowledgeable, you can give them the law as they need it. You know, that's the point of, of having those checks there. And and so implicit storytelling, you know, can be semi-explicit in terms of, um, you know, the, the, you, you walk into a temple and there's a great statue in front of you that's trimmed with gold, uh, clearly of an important figure. Um, if someone is interested to know they can roll a history or a religion check or whatever relevant check, right? If the players are not interested to know, you can end the description there so that you're not dragging it out for them, you know, um, which is something I, I need I to get better a at, honestly. statue or a mural for, for giving information, right? <laughs> Here's yeah. what you see and then they can roll to find out what it is referencing, right? Yeah. Which is great. It, it does also, it's it's that thing that I was talking about, right? With the, the um, three-way crossroads where a king was murdered by his son, right? For me, I know what that means. Someone else might just be like, all right, cool. Um, and, and you get that sort of level of difference if you're rolling history or religion or whatever. And I think that's great. My only thing is that I wish that I could just just give them the picture in my brain when I'm talking mm. about a mural or a statue. <laughs> oh, how I wish. Yeah. <laughs> I think a good little shortcut to that is to take just like in, in the Fellowship of the Ring, they're in Moria, all the dwarves are dead. Clearly something terrible has happened. Um, Gandalf finds a chronicle written by the dwarf Ori in uh, Balin's tomb and he rattles off a bit. Clearly, you know, Gandalf is reading pages upon pages of dwarvish script, and he just kind of says, they have taken the South Hall, drums in the deep, they are coming. And, you know, that's all the players need to know. It's said, oh, crap. <laughs> uh, yeah. the, the drums are the sound you must beware. And then, of course, when they start coming, bum, 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 the drum beat comes up. Um, if you don't have a Gandalfish NPC with which to communicate only the vital information, following Dead Space's example and just scrawling the relevant information on the wall instead of having to communicate <laughs> your ideas in a quite detailed mural. Uh, actually, you know, we make fun of Dead Space for saying that after all of their lovely implicit environmental storytelling. But you know what? The playtesters got the point. They figured it out. Yeah. What's what's the most common writing advice that you hear? Three letter, Three <gasps> words. 
show don't tell show don't tell which is which is (laughs) which is great advice unless you need to tell Mm -hmm. because sometimes you just need to tell sometimes the showing will kill you as if you have players who don't want to be shown they just want to be told as james just showed us uh in in his example where gandalf just said they've taken the south okay we know where we need to go we don't need to see everything we're told the important plot point we can move on we don't need to be shown you know what actually immediately came to mind as an example of great implicit lore delivery that is tell don't show is star wars frequently Mm. star wars will just be like you know completed the Kessel run in under 12 parsecs. And you're like, I don't know what that is or what that means, but you get the point. The point is the Millennium Falcon is fast. Like mm-hmm. it, it just tells you a thing, but doesn't explain it. It's like, there you go. There's some law. There's a Kessel run. Just go with it, mm-hmm. you know? And, but it does it all the time. And you know what? Famous for its lore and its world building. And it it's- starts yeah. with a whole page of lore down. Right. It does. It does. <laughs> the whole scrolling. Right. Yeah. So what we're saying is, forget everything we said at first. This is the important. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, uh, You know, I want to add to that and and mildly disagree with something that Dale said earlier. This is a mild disagreement about about um, picking up necessarily called out. (laughs) No, very necessarily about picking up books, right? Um, Because I I am an absolute sucker for a dead body with a journal uh, in my D&D games. So much so it's kind of become an unintentional trope. I where... love a letter. <laughs> yeah, or a letter works just as well. it's shorter and I can um, leave out more details. <laughs> well, often what I'll say is like, you know, you, you, you know, much like a, a video game RPG will do, it'll have like some block text that says like much of the pages of this journal are, are water damaged or burned so you can't make out. Fortunately, you can make out the one important bit, mm-hmm. which is, you know, mm-hmm. a couple lines long. Um, and the reason I like that is because within your implicit storytelling, uh, you you want to make sure that the important things are still communicated and that it's not too obscure. You know, I think Colville calls it like signal versus noise or something like that. Um, uh, the signal uh, to noise ratio, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, so, and uh, NPCs that they can have a discussion with is also a, a great example of this where the NPC brings flavor and personality and opinion. Uh, I've got an NPC that's currently traveling with my party and he uh, he's great because he knows everything about Astoya uh, from his very specific perspective and the players don't know much at all because they're foreigners to that land. And so they can ask him if they're ever not sure about something a, getting a bit of NPC interaction, but B, also, you know, realizing that they're getting the information from his point of view, you know, and so uh, they have to uh, take that information and marry it with their own thoughts. Uh, you know, th- this particular character is loyal to the Crimson Court of Astoria. Um, and so when the players are like, they're all vampires, this is bad. Like, this is a bad situation. They're taking blood for tax. He can be like, yeah, don't don't your guys take blood for tax? Like, isn't that normal? Like, don't, isn't that not done everywhere? Um, you know, and it, it, it's interest. It, it, it's clear law delivery, but it's still engaging because it's not just you know rattling off information. It has to be uh, drawn out of the NPC in some capacity. And Ben, I want to pick up on something that you said earlier, 
which is, you know, so, so ignore everything we've just said. And it's that, uh, you know, you can have NPCs that present highly opinionated views. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's really, really useful for communicating information. Oh, that's a classic Dragon Age technique. Right? Yeah. I mean, just oh, like you were saying way. there yeah. with your Crimson Quartz supporter. But sometimes it's really good to just tell your players exactly what's happening. Because otherwise sure, they yeah. will tie themselves in knots over misunderstanding what information you've just communicated to them. And sometimes it's a misunderstanding. It's, it's a really dumb misunderstanding. It's a misunderstanding that no one who actually lives in that world would ever make because you know they have a a fundamental bedrock of context that the players don't have and whenever that happens rather than i mean it becomes a gotcha if you try and nail them on that kind of misunderstanding you should just tell them like (laughs) they're trying to figure it out they will be happy if you just tell them they won't get bored they'll be like oh we've been missing that the whole time okay all right never mind there there's a couple times where you know i've said to players i don't want you to mistake this for a red herring Mm -hmm. you know sometimes Mm -hmm. you want a red herring yeah go talk to this npc he might be able to help you out (laughs) npc is already dead or you know it's another story thread (laughs) but sometimes you're like oh you know my brother died and his body was left at the top of the mountain and the players go, oh, well, we have to go get the body. And I'll be like, no, no, no. I don't want you to mistake that for a red. That's just a bit of background information. The, the thing that sticks out as important to your character is this other thing instead, you know? Um, and, you know, I was watching a, 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 it was probably on Facebook, a short that I was flipping through. And it was a guy giving a lecture about how to deliver information in a TED talk or something. And it's about uh, cadence mm. and breaking things up. And being slow sometimes, but then also swapping to really quick pace of, of speaking, you know, and, and getting low, but then going high, so, you know, and, and- <laughs> The dynamics that I was missing so much when my voice was gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. Um, and, you know, that, that doesn't just uh, pertain to the pace of speaking and the pitch of a voice, but also, you know, having a variety of different implicit techniques in there with NPCs, with short bits of text that give plain information, with- a description of something that can be investigated more with, you know, that may or may not be picked up on with the monsters that you choose in a specific, you know, all these things create a tapestry uh, of implicit detail that help communicate the story to the players and vice versa, you know, back the other way. JP Zabitz in chat says, my players will ask me law questions mid-session, not because they want to know the law, but rather because they want to make sure they know the consequences of a course of action, sure. which is fair and good in my opinion. Mm-hmm. And I agree. And I also think that it ties in a little bit with one of Sean's tricks from earlier, which is tie the law to succeeding on a roll because then it becomes a little treat, right? Mm. <laughs> it's, it, it becomes a thing that they're like, ah, yes, my reward. Um, I think, yes, absolutely. It is the best place to probably deliver law is when it's tied to consequences and rewards. And I think that just lands. Sometimes people will then call for that history role. Oh, I I rolled a five. Okay, well, I'm not going to tell you the lore. The trick to that is to tell them the complete opposite of the truth but deliver it so that they know that it is. Ah. Oh, you heard a rumor that said that the the <laughs> queen is kind and benevolent and all the dead bodies you see on spikes on the side of the road. That's just a misunderstanding. The queen is really, really very benevolent. And so you've heard. Ah. Sure. Having rolled the yes. five, they know that is completely wrong and you're delivering the information that they need to know in a humorous mm. and engaging way. 
Yes. Mm. Also, I mean, turn that statue that Ben was talking about into uh, a statue that breeds fire. Now it's a trap and now it matters if they succeed on that <laughs> history check. Ah. <laughs> I mean, that's that's going to be the player's motivation for wanting to learn the law, right? Yeah, I, I've had a, uh, I had a player at one of my tables uh, when I was pro GMing who I loved to bits because he loved the law. He wanted that ten page, you know, breakdown. He wanted mm-hmm. to history check everything and learn, and that that was his jive, right? And that's great. But that the sort of player who's that into it, um, uh, in my experience, is a little bit of a rarity. And the reason the players want to learn the law is to is to progress the story of their character is to you know uh, achieve something or not achieve something is to because i don't want to tie it to i don't i don't want to say all players are gamey and they all want it to be a a success or fail mechanic uh and and that's what the law hinges on because there are players even if they prefer that success or fail kind of thing they're interested in the storytelling more than the pure mechanics not trying Mm -hmm. to paint an overly broad brush what i'm trying to say is that's why players will want to know the law is to interact with the game, right. uh, not just for the sake of knowing the law, you know. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd go read a book. Yeah. Um, That's a really good way of putting it. Also, uh, Turbo KKV in chat says, law through ominous dream. <laughs> yeah. I mean, particularly if you've got like a warlock or a cleric or a paladin. It's actually a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> One last email that came in uh, from Andy Demps, uh, emailing in a correction um, uh, from Elderwood uh. Academy fame. Minor correction. Uh, this is from a couple episodes back. Uh, Thieves Guild, I can't actually remember what we said, so take this with a grain of salt. Thieves Guilds did not originate in D&D. They were first mentioned in the short story Thieves House, 1943, by Fritz Lieber, uh who I believe may have been basing it on earlier, you know, tidbits of history as well, if not a oh, formal deal. Oh, I, I genuinely, I usually assume that if someone says it was first recorded to have been written here, that it means that it was based. You know, it's like people say Shakespeare invented the word elbow, but the right. scene where he says elbow wouldn't make sense if the people in the audience didn't know what an elbow was. So right. it's like, I think the word mm. elbow existed. Um, but yeah, no, good correction. Good correction. Take back everything I said. Uh, well if you want to write in a a correction uh please don't please don't make that a thing um uh, unless you really feel fiery about it actually you know what blanket statement please don't leave a youtube comment you can leave a youtube comment um i mean if we're wrong feel free to tell us but comments is probably (laughs) if i'm wrong please don't tell me I want to live in my ignorance. (laughs) Leave it in the comments because then other people can argue with you as well. Um, uh, I mean, have conversation. Get the conversation going. If you want to keep this conversation going, get down in the comments of this video. You can leave a comment. I read them all. Um, Sadly, that's true. Um, uh, Or uh, you can leave us a thumbs up or or a star review if you're listening to this on Spotify or wherever. Yeah, I know. But do you read all the comments on your videos? Oh, probably after a couple of weeks I stopped checking on them, but I do read most of them. Yeah, okay. No, I read all of them. All of them. Every single one. Friends, we're trying to get you to make the Lorecast so popular that Ben loses his mind trying to read all the comments. We want to drive him into a sort of Lovecraftian haze from how many comments he's reading. 
Yes. (laughs) That or loses the capacity to read all the comments. Uh, Mm -hmm. That would also be equally, uh, uh, maybe preferred even, uh, James. Um, (laughs) Otherwise, next week we'll be like, hello and welcome to this week's episode of The Eldridge. (laughs) (laughs) They're all around me. (laughs) Anyway, that's what I'd be like if I lost my mind. My name's been Ben Byrne, uh, here with James Hake, Sean Merwin, Dale Kingsmill, uh, we will be back next week in all the places. You can join us on Twitch, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 4 p.m. Pacific on a Monday, 9 a.m. Tuesday, Australian uh, Standard Time, uh, and we will catch you there. Okay, goodbye. Nobody do it. Nobody do it. He has to learn. He has to take us off eventually. <laughs> he has to take us offline eventually. <laughs> 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 All right, we'll see who breaks first then. <laughs> We're just going to sit here in silence. That's the plan. <laughs> uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be silence. It's a stare Sitting. down. This is going to be Sitting a great is the gag. Of standing. A great gag for the <laughs> Twitch only. Sitting oh, is the Joey's close. Running around. All right. But we will break you one week, Dante. <laughs> I can't believe it was bad.